Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I interview Hanif Joshigani. Hanif is a former investment banker turned entrepreneur. He's now on to building his fourth successful startup named Cement. We get into Cement as well as his investment banking experience. We talk about how it's influenced his approach to financing. There's no doubt that his banking experience has played a big role in the successful exits he's had in the past. Hanif makes a point that engaging bankers to market your deal is really a sales job. It all starts with winning over their confidence. When done well, it can mean a quick, properly priced financing, or the flip side, if done poorly, not getting the deal done at all. I enjoyed this interview because we get to hear firsthand how bankers view deals and how you can make your financings more successful when engaging a banking team. It was also interesting discussing his current financing path with Cement and the similarities there are between finding the right public or private investors, regardless of the stage your business is at. Enjoy this episode. Hanif, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you very much for taking the time. I'm interested to dive into the experience you have both on the entrepreneurial pursuits you've had and I mean, to, to great success, as well as the investment banking path. So let's get started. Absolutely happy to be here. So the first question I want to get into is, Simon, will you tell us about uh, what you're building there and uh, where you're going and, and all about that company? Because I think your past experience in finance has, has surely influenced what you're doing now. Sure. So Cement, what we've built is a customer engagement and treatment platform specifically architected to help these very large companies with a very, very large delinquency problem where a huge percentage of their customers are delinquent with their bills every month, do a more effective and efficient job of engaging with these customers in a positive way, getting them to engage back and treat them in a way that saves them a lot of money on OPEX versus call centers in the traditional ways they've been doing it. But in addition to that, gets better engagement, better results in far, as far as treatment, which means less bad debt generated, more customers saved, which the flip side of that is less customers churned. And this is especially important for the types of companies that we're servicing, like banks and telcos, where they're in fairly mature business cycles. And uh, churning a customer is very, very expensive because replacing that customer is a zero-sum game against some other telco to go and get him because there's not a lot of new growth that's happening in mature industries. Really interesting. What got you into that game? How did you decide to start this company? Honestly, I've, I've had a couple of entrepreneurial stints with some modest success before this. Uh, so I, you know, I had a capital markets background up until about uh, 2010. And from there, almost opportunistically, or by chance, I kind of ended up in a, in a, in a entrepreneurial role, I really liked it. And uh, 
along the way, everything was more opportunistic. Like I saw an opportunity and I, w- I had the, a decisiveness to step into it. Whereas with Cement, it was more of a long-term passion project of mine that I've been researching on the side. I had some understanding of delinquency and bad paper uh, based on my exposure to the capital markets, but only periphery. But I had also had uh, really terrible experiences with collection agencies uh, all the way back to when I was a kid and we were poor refugees. So I kind of carried those experiences forward like 20 years. And when I was thinking about a passion project that would be kind of like my last rodeo and my mark on the world, I wanted it to be something that had not only built something valuable that I personally felt connected to, but had a big social impact. And reducing the impact of alleviating the impact of delinquency for the at-risk consumers of Canada and beyond is it not only is it something that I'm passionate about, but I really think it's a social good. You know, these people, once they get into this delinquency cycle, everything gets more expensive. It's a downward spiral. And if we can save some of those people from that outcome, then I think we're doing uh, something that's not only valuable economically, but also important socially. I've got a smile on my face because I never thought a former investment banker would, uh, have a, a compassionate view, especially towards. <laughs> yeah, um, we weren't all board investment bankers, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> hats off to you. Hats off to you. What What do you say we step into some of the investment banking? Because you had a good career there, and now that you're on both sides, or you have been on both sides, from being a CEO and financing uh, to also being on the, the investment banking side, let's start off with. What uh, segment of the market did you work in in investment banking? Um, we did some generalist M&A, um, which was, you know, the M&A, there's investment banking is organized in two ways. One is by product group and one is by industry group. And I started with a product group, namely mergers and acquisitions. And from there, I went into a, the uh, infrastructure and energy group uh, as far as the industry group is concerned. So I kind of worked both of those sides before my MBA. Those were all things that I did after my MBA. Before my MBA, I still worked in capital markets based on my um, math and economics background, but I worked more on the uh, fixed income derivative side doing kind of like complex uh, interest rate derivative type work, mainly for the prop desk of banks or hedge funds. So a little bit of variety. Okay. What was the what was the bite size you were working on? What was the market caps of the companies you're with? Oh, they were, I was working for large banks. So the 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 smallest deal I ever worked on was a two hundred million dollar deal. The largest ones were all in the half a billion to multi billion kind of size. They were they were it was larger deals that we worked on, right? So because um, I was working for the for the large firms, right? How that- although I will say size didn't really from from a from a person who's like a junior like say an analyst or associate or a vp the size is kind of interesting but it's not necessarily an indicator of how much you learn and the experience you have some of the larger deals are like let's say two banks working on the segmenting it quite a bit and so you're see you're involved in it you see it all but you only work on a slice of it whereas on a smaller transaction where 
they're not going to throw as many resources into it. The, 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 the kind of mid-level banker will get a lot more exposure. So my best experiences were always on the, uh, the ones that I learned the most from and I did the most and I was the most active were on the smaller side. So 200 million to 500 million. Right. And I mean, I would, I would look at that as your kind of small cap company. I mean, definitely from the American side, if you're to, uh, yeah, for you're, sure. But when you're looking at the people, the, the roles that you're playing there from the analyst to the, uh, uh, associate to the VP and up to the director, the one who's ultimately going to call the shots on whether doing a financing or, or championing a financing, what would you say a CEO needs to know about those roles? How can they make their lives easier so they can make their financing more successful? So realistically, like uh, it depends on whether the, the deal or the transaction is a public or a private deal. But what they, regardless of whether the information is coming from a mix of the banker and the public markets or exclusively from the banker, um, being incredibly, and this is one thing I learned from banking is, being systematic, being detail-oriented, um, being thoughtful about the steps, being incredibly organized, um, uh, you know, those things make the ability to uh, assess and make a decision on an investment that much easier. Um, and so if the, from a perspective of an investor, whether it's a financing or an M&A deal, if it feels like treasure hunting and it feels like you've stepped into chaos, well, that's an indication of how the business is run because there's a belief about how you do anything is how you do everything. And so obviously the business has to be very good and it's in terms of its foundational merits, but on top of that, People that step into chaos, they just won't spend the same time. Maybe you will get, won't get your deal done, or maybe it'll take longer or cost you more. Um, it'll take more of your resources, or you'll get discounted on your price. So in any way possible, whether you have a good business or a medium, medium business, I would say being incredibly organized, articulate, analytical, and thorough is is very important and that's kind of bred into every banker that I've ever known through hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours of versioning and double checking and being meticulous and that attention to detail and that kind of uh, that strive for perfection and order is I think something that exists in banking over and above any other vocation I've ever seen. And so you can always tell when you're dealing with an ex-banker when they leave banking because they take everything further than everybody else. When I hear that, what I often think about uh, when doing financings is you're ultimately giving a user experience. And, yes, and exactly. If, if, if I'm a CEO or I'm the finance person leading a, a financing in a company and I give one hell of a user experience, I'm going to get a better valuation. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, if they, you know, if you, if everything is super organized, if every piece of analysis is well laid out and easy to follow, if it, it's a sales job, right? Like it's, it's a, it's an analytical, analytically driven sales job and the cleaner and the more thorough your, and the more, um, logical, like as far as flow going from A to B to C so that people don't have to take leaps of faith to get to your conclusion. The more 
systematic that entire thing is, the faster and easier people will get to the conclusion that you want. When we talk about A, B, and C, those systematic steps, when approaching an investment bank or when you were looking at financings from that perspective, what were those steps? Having, so, I mean, the, the first step in any kind of M&A or um, financing process is having really good financial, I mean, and we're, and we're talking now small, medium business, really, really solid financials and a strong connection between those financials articulated at a granular, easy to follow way to a financial forecast that's sensitized and is articulate with reasonable assumptions that can easily be followed around how the financials, which are backwards looking, are a logical bridge to the forecast and why that forecast makes sense given the assumptions. And if they can get to those conclusions easily and they accept them, then everything else from there is supporting documents, right? And so, you know, relying on a very well laid out, easy to follow data room of supporting documents, uh, that's also super key. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in the, in, in, and having, making that job easy. And it's not just about getting the deal done, it's the cost at which you get the deal done. Because it's, it's not just bankers that are involved in the financing, there's lawyers, there's accountants, they all charge by the hour and their costs are not insignificant. And so the difference between a $20,000 legal bill and a $200,000 legal bill is just order and being well and good execution. If they're, all your documents are a mess, it's gonna cost you a lot of money by the time you're done. Well, yeah, I can't, I can't argue with that because I've seen, uh, uh, well, been fortunate to see both sides of that. When, when we used to do our models, one of the things we'd always just religiously stick to is, for example, making it very clear when you're, when you're modeling out what were your inputs, what were your hard codes, and what were your formulas so that there was 100%. Never, never anything buried in. What other tips like that would help? Anyone who's preparing for a finance ready to walk into the investment. Uh, make your models, uh, create sensitivities that are easy to track and make sure that you link them up to your supporting assumptions. And then don't make any one cell too formulaic. Like if, you, if A plus B plus C equals D, have all of those four variables on separate line items. So when somebody's staring at it, they can see the math instead of having to dig into a single cell with a huge formula in it and then try to follow through all the linkages and dependencies because that just, that becomes very, very difficult to follow and people don't understand how you got to your conclusions again. So it's, yeah, it's, it's having your assumptions outside of the model, uh, so that you can sensitize on them and you understand what the assumptions are, making sure that the output has no hard codes in it. That's super key. But then the other one is just don't, don't take a massive formula and plug it into a single line. Break it out into its components so that it's easy to track. And that's also important because as a business evolves and you try to change the plumbing to reflect some new reality on a financial basis, then rewiring it becomes a lot easier as well. The more complex you make your formulas and your model, the more difficult and inflexible it becomes for future use. What about stepping outside of the models and some of those assumptions? The pitch and the presentation and the materials that, that used, 
in your experience, what were some of the best materials you saw that, that you looked at and you're like, yeah, this makes sense. Yes, this will, I'll get behind this. Generally speaking, things where evaluation was justified by more than just your forecast, but why the assumptions in your forecast are reasonable, uh, tying it back to research, tying it back to the addressable market, uh, and then as far as valuations are concerned, tying it back to relevant precedents and comparable companies, you know, all of those things made sense. The other thing that made uh, any kind of valuation believable is track record. So if you're able to lay out how you you basically, let's say in the past, laid out to try to achieve something from a forecast perspective, and you're within a certain small confidence of interval of that, that lends credibility to what you're forecasting now. But whereas if you have huge volatility around what you expect, obviously that implies risk, and risk creates a bigger discount factor. So... I would say those things. It's, as long as it's easy to follow, and as long as you're talking to the right investors, then it becomes how believable is the forecast, and do I believe in the team? And so that's another huge part of it is like laying out in a very organized way, you know, who is the team that's going to execute on this stuff, and do they have the wherewithal to do so? When, when taking those materials, you mentioned, uh, for example, institutional investors and, uh, or going out to find those investors. I've asked this question to another guest. Uh, how do you go about or how would you go about finding a lead investor? And I think this would be interesting from, from both your perspective now with what you're doing with Cement, mm-hmm. as well as in the past when, when deals came to you looking for, for leads. It depends on the size of the company and what you want that capital to do for you. So if you're just looking for, you know, silent money, like a huge, the bigger you become, the less strategic capital becomes generally, not always, like if you're Uber and you take money from the Chinese government, that's still highly strategic, for example. But generally speaking, the more seasoned the business becomes, the more the strategic things that they need to achieve are achieved operationally and they rely less and less on their investor to get them those things. But earlier in the company's development, the capital has to come with strategic value add because you're looking for capital that not only you're giving up a piece of your business, uh, you want to make sure that the capital gets X return on it. So for every money dollar you put in the ground, you want to make sure over three years you get a $10 back or something like that over three to five years, then you better make sure that the people you bring into the table are going to uh, skew the numbers in your favor as far as the probability of that outcome. And so being like, okay, what are the things that are going to drive success? Is it getting into my verticals better? Is it a roller deck? Is it uh, experience building a scalable sales organization? Uh, is it access to markets that I don't have without him? Like whatever you think the underlying conditions are that allow you to go from today to a 10x you target the invest not just the funds but also the specific partners that are going to help you achieve that 
And then you go from that perspective and target investors and make sure whether, and this is independent size in my opinion, that you always vet the investors. They're going to vet you. So you got to do it the same way to them, not just on the deal that they've been successful on, but you got to get a list of all their investments and you decide who to go talk to so that you talk to the ones that went sideways as well. Because like any relationship, the test is when things get hard, not when things are shooting through the moon. How much energy should CEOs put in long-term relationships with investment bankers? I, I think it's pretty important, honestly. Like, but again, the, the analysis and the, the analytics that they give you and the support and research and some of these other things, those are all kind of like price of entry stuff, right? Like you can't really, I mean, at least amongst the really big banks say, you can't really tell a significant difference in the quality of that work product. What really matters from an investment banking standpoint is how good are they at running a process, managing it, bringing the right investors to the to table, creating price tension, and giving you sound advice on which way to go and which investors offer to accept. So I would say that their experience in the vertical or the market. So if you're selling a public equity round or something, then how deep is their trading book? How big are the institutional relationships that they have? And things of that nature. So how adept are they at filling and raising your capital? But then also how good are they at supporting the company after you raise the capital? So, so that would be on the public side. And on the private side, it would be, uh, their roller deck into the markets and their ability to execute. So those would be the things, the analysis, like the modeling, forecasting, putting a deck together, like they all hire really, really smart guys. And it's hard to tell the difference, honestly, between the quality of the work. It's the senior execution capabilities that I think make the difference. On the public side, you mentioned something uh, interesting there. How big is their, is their book? Uh, how much horsepower do they have in, the, in their trading? And specific to some of those areas, how would you quantify that? What kind of questions would you ask as a CEO of a public company? You would need to look at in your space, right? Like how active have they been trading the names on their desk of comparable companies or sector similar companies. And then that would be one part of it. So how active are they in on the trading side, taking institutional orders, supporting transactions, things of that nature. So that's one side of it. How well, re how well covered is the research in that space? Uh, that's another part of it. And more importantly, just historically, post offering, has their trading desk supported the trades? Right uh, and 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 provided liquidity and brought uh, you know volumes to the to the name or to the issue. So those would be the things that I would look at. Excellent. I think those perhaps are questions that uh, are surely at the table, but sometimes maybe not asked or just overlooked in the in the haste of getting a deal done. Yeah, absolutely. Like sometimes people will cut fees or do whatever just to try to win a deal and you know executives see the dollar signs and they go with someone that doesn't have the same depth uh, and, and infrastructure to provide the follow-up support they do the issue and then the stock tanks because there wasn't a deep enough support for it um they're not good in that space or whatever the case may be so not looking at just the fees but looking at 
you know, I would rather pay up for a more adept uh, and more deep uh, banker versus a thin one. I see where you're going there. And paying within the sense of perhaps a, a lower valuation or paying in the sense or, or of fees. Uh, Fees. I would say the market is going to set the valuation typically, and people normally set the valuations in a way that's supported by the market. And if they set it too high, then the market's just going to lay into it right after, right? So um, I'm talking fees, and I'm also talking about valuation, both of those. Right. Now, what's what's your take on on pricing? So, I mean, we can go in and and look at comparables, and you know, draw your analysis out for setting a relative price to go to market with. Do you side with going high or going low to market? I mean, is there a strategy there? Uh, is it worth um, that, that's a good battle? Well, what do you think? Is there what? How should that's we a good that? question? Um, I, again, I think it depends on uh, whether it's a private deal or a public deal. Are you having VCs compete or private equity firms compete for something, or is it going into public markets? But generally speaking. You know, you don't want to go too high because what you want to do is get people, a lot of people to all bid for it and create price competition and let that competition drive it up instead of you. Uh, so, but you don't want to discount it too much. There's no competition. And now you've undersold yourself. Generally speaking, the market will set the price. But if you're smart about it um, and you price right inside the win, if you soft shop it, have some conversations, understand the precedence, market just slightly below that, and you have a good banker that can bring the right people to the table, then sometimes just out of spite, they start outbidding each other. And you end up in a situation where it gets driven up versus if you price it too high, you don't get the same price tension um, and you don't end up in the same place. You may even... The worst outcome would be you don't get it fully sold and you have to price it down. So I would say it's always good to be a little more conservative. And if you're being too conservative, the mic, if you have the right tension in your, in your financing, then the market will adjust it up anyway. And when you've looked at deals, uh, what have been some of the biggest just almost um, foolish mistakes you've seen CEOs make? Try to time the market. The one thing, the the two things that I've seen bite people time and time again, and yet even I'm not immune to the greed that sometimes stands in front of us and trying to get cute with the market is trying to time the market. It's like, oh, I can raise now, but if I wait a little longer, I'll have a higher valuation because these things are happening in the business and blah, blah, blah. Or, uh, you know, I don't like the price today. Maybe I'll wait six months and go then. Or I won't raise as much today so that I can manage my dilution and I'll tear in and I'll go to market again. You know, if the ducks are quacking and you need the capital, you know, it raise money and overraise. That's my general. Now, don't go crazy and like triple overraise or whatever, but always raise more than what you think you need because you're going to need more than you think typically. And don't try to time the markets. Just do what's right for your business because you will, I've seen more often than not people get uh, strung out because they're like, Oh, I'll wait till X, Y, Z happens and then we'll be ready. And all of a sudden, even if let's say you get an extra turn in value, but the market has come off three, you're a net loser, right? So don't, don't try to predict the market is basically my advice. Focus on your business and make sure that you don't put your business at risk for a couple of points. Excellent. That's the biggest mistake I've seen all time and time again. 
So what I'd like to do is actually uh, switch gears and talk cement again, because you guys are, uh, you're, you're on a, a huge growth curve as I understand, but you're also yeah. going through some money raising phases. And can we, that being private dollars, there's, there's obviously, you're a smart guy, you've got an end in mind. What are some of the parameters around there? What, do, what are you looking at right now in your financing for cement? Um, honestly, valuation is a part of it, but the biggest, within a certain confidence interval, say 10%, um, the valuation stops mattering. You know, if somebody's way off market, if you have eight VCs bidding for it and two guys are like 30% off from everybody else, they get excluded, right? But beyond that, it's strategic value at, uh, at the end of the day. So it's like, you know, if I'm trying to scale into the U.S. market in banking and telcos, can they walk me into meetings? Do they have the, if I'm trying to uh, fine tune my sales process for selling to huge enterprise, have they done that before? Are they operators, are the members of the VC operators that have scaled companies before? If I'm looking to acquire and triple my team, do they have a deep network and infrastructure to help me on talent acquisition going from A to B aggressively? So it's all about strategic value add and what things you focus on in strategic value add will vary based on what you think are going to be the things that are going to get you to your next phase. What we didn't, what we didn't speak about earlier was uh, the, some of the quantified metrics of cement. Can you share some of those? Where you're at? Sure. In? Like we were, well, we started, uh, you know, we started this year at, uh, you know, almost zero revenue and we're up to almost by, you know, uh, we're close to 300 K a month. Uh, kind of doing that type of revenue and we expect in six months to be at a million a month so that's kind of, it's like it's like, you know all there's a long long sales cycle to this business um, but once you start to kind of land some contracts and gain that credibility and that experience and the track record of delivering value you start to figure the pattern and then it starts to scale pretty fast um, I would hope that by the end of 2000 19 we have a business with you know somewhere between say 11 and you know 15 million a year in run rate revenue uh we'll probably have a team of about 50 60 people um and uh we'll be focusing on uh global markets uh mostly especially in the united states but to a lesser extent uk and australia and some other places like that and when you think about a, a long run financing game, especially with some of your public market experience, would you consider, would you look at the public markets as a, uh, a means to IPO or RTO? Not today. And I'll tell you why, because the time horizons of the current, like if you, the markets today are very kind of risk on risk off. Right. And so the, our business right now needs to think not in terms of quarterly and monthly, earnings reports and i mean for some issues like the weed business where they need access to raise the amounts that they need they need access to retail capital as well and that retail institutional capital doesn't participate as aggressively in it like weed like junior mining things of that nature where institutional money isn't as active i understand why there's a venture exchange but for stuff like ours where a we need the strategic value add and b we don't want to be exposed to the ebbs and flows and the extra costs and the illiquid stock of a public issuance then uh 
businesses like ours typically don't go public until you're at least a half a half a billion valuation on the low end and more typically at least a billion valuation. Gotcha. I mean, I've, I've seen great success in companies who have used that public venture capital on the venture, but like you say, it's been uh, resource plays who have been well marketed and well supported. It's been cannabis companies who have been able to leverage public venture capital where I can see your case. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we need the strategic value add, honestly. Like, uh, you know, our board, which is all our investors, the, the VCs, they're seasoned veterans that have all built multi-billion dollar companies. And they've been, they're important. They've been very helpful in helping us get this business to the scale it needs to be. And we're not even halfway there. So, What has been the best process you've found to develop those relationships? Because I mean, like any develop them early. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's rapport is everything. Credibility is everything, and those things are developed over time. So you know, I always say like, start talking to your A investors when you seed the company, and talk talking to your B investors when you do your A. Because if you have regular touch points, and they see that say a year, and like say I'm sitting here today, and I'm not going to raise for a year, and I talk to a VC and say I'm going to do A, B, and C this year, and at the end of the year he's seen that I've done A, B, and C he sees that I have capabilities and they're investing in people as much as the idea this early. And so building that rapport is super important to like, because at the end of the day, once you're raising money, you're, you're, you need an investor to believe in what you believe about the future. And that alignment on the future requires them to believe in you. And if you can build that over time, it's a lot easier than trying to build that over a couple of meetings. So just in looking at time, uh, to wrap this up, what would be the, the advice you'd give to both you know, pre-public or, or uh, public CEOs, uh, or even going after venture? What are, what are some of those touch points that you'd wrap up, those two or three touch points you'd say they have to know and have to do? Have a handle on your business metrics. Like, you know, because regardless of who's looking after your uh, financing or who you're evaluating for which avenue you're evaluating for financing uh, being very very strong in terms of the key whatever those metrics are that drive success and drive the performance of your business knowing what those metrics are knowing how they compare to the industry knowing where you want them to go and having a well articulated plan for like not like super convoluted and dense, but like if I do A, B, and C, I get from today to tomorrow, that's, and being able to have a strong answer to those types of things, that's really what sets people apart. If people ask you financial questions, runway questions, uh, metric questions, and you have to say, oh, I don't know, let me go look it up. And if you're not well articulated and the key value proposition points are not things that you can at you know, add, add your tip, fingertip, bring up, then you're not going to come off as strong. At the end of the day, people value your value proposition and the value of your business. And if you're able to articulate that, and people form first impressions pretty quickly. And so if you're able to, in the small amount of time you're given with a specific person, if you're able to, with strength and confidence, articulate those things, it goes a long way to kind of reserving their interest and making them want to dig in further. Well, Hanif, thanks, thanks so much for your time. Uh, looking You're forward very to welcome. Yeah. Very awesome. welcome. Thank you for your time.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.